How long did it come up? Uh, did it take you to come up with this one, Duke, for the, our next guest? Oh, I had to dig deep. Did you really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought about it all morning. <laughs> uh, we're really excited uh, for our next guest. Uh, one of the best skiers in Canadian history, uh, Jungle Jim Hunter, joins us on uh, the show now. Uh, Jim, you're with Kevin Carries and Lorianne Munzer, Olympic gold medalist. Uh, good morning, and, and Lorianne's got the question right off the hop for you. Good morning, Jim. Tell us about hey, the Lori name. Ann, great to hear you. Good to hear you too. Thanks for coming on. Jungle Thank Jim you. Hunter, where did Jungle Jim come from? How did you get the nickname? Uh, well, uh, just so they have a little bit of background, my real name is Mark. It's not Jim. <laughs> and uh, I was born and raised in Saskatchewan, was going to be a farm boy hockey player, and that was the dream, and that was the goal. And at 10, smashed my head and ended up in a coma. And uh, when I woke up, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who my family was. I didn't know the names of anybody. Um, life started over. And uh, I, was, I was kind of a, as my mom used to say, I was a 10-year-old, 10-and-a-half-year-old boy when I woke up from the coma and uh, in 11-year-old mind. And somehow James or Jim appealed to me more, even though it really was not my name and everybody else called me Mark and then when I registered to go ski racing for the first time at 12 and a half years of age um, I was registering and the uh, coach that I played hockey for I saw in the day lodge and he had a rule that said if you play for me you're playing triple A hockey for me in Calgary you cannot do any other sport and I didn't know what to do. And I, I just on the moment said, okay, I'm James Hunter today. I'm Jim Hunter today. <laughs> and, and so he couldn't hear me, and I was hoping he didn't hear me. I registered as Jim Hunter, and um, it was fortuitous because four years later when I cycled from Calgary to Nelson in four days, 100 miles a day, a reporter was sitting in the front seat of a team van driving up to the glacier, and uh, the coach said, uh, great, you brought your bike. You could ride with the national team guys between camps. Uh, I said, assume your bags and your ski equipment is down at the bus depot. Uh, and I said, yes. And I said, I didn't ride up from the bus depot. And he went, what? I said, I didn't ride from the bus depot. I rode from Calgary. And he says, but I spoke to you on the phone four days ago. And how old are you? And I said, I'm 15. And he goes, Wow. Where did you sleep? And I said, well, the first day I slept in a culvert at the Eisenhower Junction. And he said, why a culvert? And I said, because my coach told me that the bears wouldn't go in there. So that was that made sense to me. I, I mean, I'm only 15, so I figured it out. And then the uh, second day I slept under a park bench uh, with a plastic sheet over it because I had a brought a plastic sheet to protect myself from the rain and at night when I was sleeping. And then the third night, I slept in a train car, a sidecar, in Kinneber, B.C. And then the last day, made it to Nelson. And sitting in the front seat was this reporter named Lloyd Finley. And uh, he followed me around. He was there to do a story on the national team. And I was nobody. I'd never won a race. I was, I was absolutely nobody. I had no reason to even be talked about. I was there as a flunky, working as a flunky, serving dishes, serving meals to the national team, chopping wood, uh, making sure that the Briggs and Stratton motors go on the, on the lifts. And all of a sudden, when I get home after being there all summer, 
my dad meets me at the bus depot in Gull Lake, Saskatchewan, and holds up this newspaper, and it was the Toronto um, Star, or or maybe the I don't know, it was in the Star, the Globe and Mail, on the front page in big red letters that says, "What makes Jungle Jim Hunter go?" <laughs> and he he actually gave me the nickname that stuck. And the whole article was about the future of the national team and how great it would be if they would all work the way I watched this kid work. And he told stories about me. He told me about swimming in the glacier lake and running to the top of the mountain before breakfast at four in the morning. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that he told stories about. And then there was one column down in the corner of the front page that said national team trains on glacier. And it was about the fact that they were there. Um, but the story was all about me and the crazy thing about it, Lorianne, is a great reputation that goes ahead of you makes you a lot better than you actually are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's epic. Jim. I mean, holy smokes! I've been doing this for 33 years, and I can honestly say I've interviewed thousands and thousands of people, and that's one of the most fascinating answers I've ever heard. Uh, I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I was hoping I could do it as short as possible, <laughs> so I'm sorry I talked. Oh too much. no, uh, Jungle Jim Hunter, our guest, Kevin Carey, Lorianne Munzer. So you did mention some training that you did do and I think one of the biggest uh, stories with you is training and how you were strapped to the to the top of a car and your dad was driving can you kind of tell our listeners about how all that went down well you've got the information almost correct it was on top of our service truck that we use with tools to go to the farm (laughs) and that happened because my dad um and this will sound a little sad but um it's the truth and so it's what it is my dad did not want me to be a ski racer um we came from saskatchewan he thought it was just too big a dream too far to go it, you know it just wasn't going to happen and i had never skied until i was 12. and and so he said i don't care what you do i have my eight priorities and i've taught you my eight priorities in life and i want those eight priorities to be your top focus and anything you do after those eight is your business, but it better not interfere with the other eight. And so I made skiing number nine, and he said, I don't know how you're going to ski coming from here. And I said, well, I can get up early in the morning and train, and I can train while I'm doing all the labor jobs, because I'll do all the labor jobs, and you can drive the tractor, Dad, because I don't want to drive the tractor. I want to I want to pick rocks. I want to shovel grain. I want to shovel snow. I, you know, that kind of stuff is what I want to do. And um, I built the rack in the back of the truck, and he came out one morning and said, what's that? And I said, I am going to practice downhill when we go to the field. And he says, okay, what are we doing? And I said, well, I'll stand on top of the rack on my skis and my ski boots and my overalls on and I'll just change my shoes when I get to the field and take my boots off and put my running shoes back on and I'll ride on top of the truck because we had land that was 18 miles away 20 miles away Uh, I think at that time that was the furthest we went and I would ride on top of the truck and in the National Film Board when they came to film me on doing this they wanted to shoot it and I said well be here at 4 o'clock in the morning and they showed up and the film board says, um, it's pitch black. We can't see anything. What are we doing? 
And I said, well, I'm riding on top of the truck. And, of course, they couldn't film it. And they said, why do you do it in the dark? And I said, because the RCMP can't see me. <laughs> and I rode on top of the truck, uh, so the RCMP didn't know I was riding on top of the truck. And Dad would drive to the field, and I would sit in my crouch for about 20 minutes or 18 minutes or 16 minutes, whatever it took. And you weren't fixed. The skis were not fixed on no, the nothing truck, was like they were loose. As a, of, as a matter of fact, had I fallen, I'd be dead. <laughs> it, was, it was just part of, oh, well, this is what you do. If you're going to be the best, you just, you got to take the chances. You got to do it. You just so do it. Just there, it. Yeah. So there, there's, there's one other story about mm-hmm. the tractor wheel. I remember seeing uh, footage of you inside of the, of the tractor wheel well. Do I have that correct? And, and what was going on? Um, I had read that downhill racers were like astronauts flying through the air and they had to have great balance. And I had read that astronauts spin in a centrifuge and then try to stabilize the plane. And so I said to my dad, um, I'll just take the cushion off the couch and throw it in the wheel well and then you drive the truck or drive the tractor. And um, I'll make sure that I look out so that I'm looking at the landscape spinning around me so that I on purpose make myself dizzy and then I'll try to get back in my crouch. And um, all of these things I could do as long as it didn't interfere with farm work. And dad used to just shake his head and go, I don't know what this has to do with ski racing, but if you think it'll help, okay, do it. And (laughs) I I did all my training on the tractor um, I did pre-jumps on the seat of the tractor and was six, seven feet off the tractor while it's pulling a cultivator or an, and, a, and a drill, set of drills or a rod weeder. Um, I did all my weightlifting. I had a pail on one side with bungee cords and made out of tire tubes and on the other side, steel bars. And I did all my training while I was driving. And again, it didn't affect the farm work. It just allowed me to turn my gym into a, a, tra- a mobile. I had the first mobile gym, I think. <laughs> and um, I used to read books all the time while I was on the tractor. And I believe I am the first distracted driver in the world. But um, I don't know. I, I could be uh, wrong there. That's incredible. This is simply amazing stories. It uh, sounds like with your priorities, it was, you know, your dad's priorities were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then I think you sprinkled it 1.9. 2.9, 3.9, and so on with that. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I actually didn't think of it that way, Lorianne, although that is an outstanding idea. But I, I actually looked at it as, okay, um, multitask. How many multitasks can you do? Like, like I don't want to blow your mind here, but I also used to have headphones on <laughs> listening to tapes by Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller and Tony Robbins eventually. I mean, anybody I could get while I was working out. And so now I'm training my mind. I'm training my body. I'm driving a tractor. And by the way, I had to drive the tractor work for my dad because he refused to give me any money to ski race. And he said, the only way you can do this is to earn the money and pay for it yourself. So he says, I want to see your budget, and that's the number of hours you got to work to pay for your skiing. So at 12 years of age, I, at the age of 12, I started paying by working for him, and I earned the money to ski race. And mm-hmm. I spent all my money on ski racing. <laughs> that was all I was interested in. And in the wintertime, I was just thankful that we weren't farming. <laughs> Uh, Jungle Jim Hunter, our guest on the Kevin Carey Show with Laurie Ann Munzer, Sports 1440. 
What was it like to be part of the crazy Canucks uh, touring Europe and the world uh, in the 70s? Um, just a phenomenal circus. Like, like really, you know, I when my mom asked me why I wanted to do this, and she said, I need to know your reason for wanting to do this. And I said, Mom, I've checked the records, and no Canadian male has ever stood on the podium. I said, the women have been the champions of Canada in alpine skiing, uh, Lucille Wheeler, Anne Hegveet, and then finally Nancy Green. And I said, no Canadian male has stood on the podium in the Olympics and World Championships. And I said, if a kid from Saskatchewan can ever get on the podium, which I did in 1972 at the 72 Olympics at 18, then every other Canadian male will be inspired to believe that they could do it because everything has got more hills than Saskatchewan has. <laughs> and um, I, I, I kind of look at it as I did what I came to do. I inspired Ken Reed and Steve Podborski and Dave Irwin, Dave Murray, much better racers than me, um, much more prepared than I was um, on, the, on the ski side of the thing. And they were professionals in what they did. And it made... It made Canada pay attention to us. Um, it made Canada really invest in sport a lot more. And we were treated as celebrities in Europe, and we were treated as bums in Canada. And that was kind of the way it was. But we knew when we went to Europe, we were the stars of the show. And it was it was a reporter over there, Serge Lang, that, that gave us the nickname Jungle, the, the Crazy Canucks. And and he loved that because he, what he saw was we would tape radios at the start and at the finish on bamboo poles and we would coach each other. And Serge Lang said the Austrians would never tell another Austrian how to beat them. And we told each other how to beat each other. And we, we really made each other better because we were investing in each other rather than just being a ski team that was there representing Canada. When you're thinking about that, you're making me think um, of so many different things. I mean, after I won gold in Athens, the first Canadian ever to win in cycling, an Olympic gold medal, I met Steve Podborski, and that was amazing. When you talk about being on the podium, because you're the first Canadian male to win a world uh, champion, a bronze medal in 72, you talked about... You know, you helped each other beat each other, but that's not, I mean, that's, that's the creative spirit. What was that like with you setting the stage and then for the other crazy Canucks to follow? How did that set up? It, it was, it was a way we had to do it because we, we did talk about it all the time. And, and we just said, you know, if we can ever beat the Europeans, and the summer of 75, we went to South America and we, we won the South American championships. I won the down, or the giant slalom and the slalom, and I think Ken Reed won the, won the downhill. And we beat the Europeans training together, and we, were, we kind of looked at it as we were on bicycles and all the European teams were a great big bus. And I used to use this illustration with the guys. I would say, I raced the bus in Calgary from Center Street North at 64th Avenue to the end of Elbow Drive and back every morning before I went to school. And, and I, I would beat the bus. And I said, for me, the bus was full of Austrians. It was full of Swiss. It was full of Germans. It was full of French. 
And, you know, they got so much money and so many coaches. They had one coach for every racer on some of those teams. And I said, we got one coach and there's five of us. So we have to coach each other. And it was, it was magical. Um, we, we somehow stunned the world in Europe and it was, we were big news over there. And it, it, I think for all five of us, it, it just made us realize that one person makes a difference. And, you know, that's, that's the best thing I can say about it. It was just inspiring. And it, it was such a, a close team concept for you guys, even though an individual sport, you said you guys, you know, you guys were so close and you wanted each other to beat each other. Yeah, it was, it, it wasn't that we, we, I mean, we, we, yeah, we wanted to beat each other. I, I mean, I have to admit that I feel like I failed in many ways because I didn't win a race, whereas Ken did and Steve did and Dave did. Um, Dave Murray didn't, but he was certainly on the podium and, and warranted the, the recognition. And I, and I felt like in many respects I failed. Um, but I found out later that the coaches that I had admitted to me afterwards that they didn't know what to tell me because I knew more about it than they did. Mm. And and because I knew more than they did, they didn't know what to teach me. And so I, I guess I ended up teaching them. And um, that was what I set out to do. You know, I didn't I didn't know if I could ever win a gold medal. I didn't know if I could ever win a race. It was, you know, I, I mean, I raced 169 races before I ever got one podium. And my mother's china cabinet that my dad built for all my trophies had one trophy in it five years after I started skiing. That was it. And, you know, so it wasn't wasn't about winning. It was about inspiring the human being to live their best life, to be the best they could be. I think you've done that. Oh, I think you I think did that. Yeah. I think you're continuing to do that. Well, I have a podcast called 831, Living Your Best Life, and that was inspired by my mom. Um, 831 is the 831 people that I diarized in my journals. Um, I had lost my memory and had to start life over, and I had, I've had i always had real memory problems, and so my mom taught me to journal and write everything down. I've written everything down since I was 12, and I she said, record, review, repeat, report, record, review, redirect, repeat. And, and every day, that's all I did. I wrote in my journal, record, and I recorded what was vital, what was important, and what, what was relevant to becoming better at what you did. I didn't, I didn't write frivolous stuff. I wrote, you know, value stuff. And I think in my six years and 10 months to my bronze medal, it, it I was, I was in a way the best coach I had. And and it was because I kept great notes. And I, I teach every athlete that I work with today, um, I try to teach them this. Um, only, only about 1%, 2% persist and do it. Um, most don't. But great athletes, Lorianne, and you know this, you know this is true, great athletes do. They, they record what they did and how they did it and what they have to do. And they, and they become their own teachers because you and I are the ones on the course. We're the ones racing the track, and we're the ones doing it. And um, I had, I know where I failed, and that was that I had no emotional coaching. And I coach today, and have produced Olympic champions and world champions, and yet I've never taught them their sport. I've only taught them how to be emotionally intelligent 
And once you teach a person to be emotionally intelligent, they can do anything. And uh, we, we, we sabotage ourselves by our emotions. Our emotions take us where we want to go, and it changes and is flighty. And so until you change the way you have self-control over your emotions with a positive perspective, um, you're at the whim of what you feel next. And that's mm-hmm. very vulnerable. And when I teach, I'm, I, have a, I have a 12-year-old right now that's number three in the world in Irish dancing. And believe me, I know nothing about Irish dancing. <laughs> Jim, this has been uh, fantastic. I mean, just such a pleasure, Jim, for you to come on. I hope we can do this again. I wouldn't. I would love Anytime. to do that. Uh, <laughs> just some great stories, inspirational. Uh, I mean, it, it covered all covered everything. So, thanks so much for your time. And again, uh, Lorianne will get you uh, get you on again here in a couple of months, just to kind of. To, we, I mean, we could. Yeah, I mean, we we just touched the surface of things here. So. Really appreciate it's an your honor. time. I, you don't know how much this means to an athlete who is retired to be asked, you know, what they did because it's it's really without the 831 people that helped me, I never would have made it. Well, I mean, I had a blast today. That was that was just top notch. Thanks a lot, Jim. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. That's uh, Jim Hunter, Jungle Jim Hunter, and uh, you know that was just fascinating. Yeah, and he really touched on it, uh, the emotional intelligence part. If you want to break it down into layman's term, I'll give you a secret. Mm -hmm. Feeling is the secret. It is everything. How you feel about it and your thoughts control everything that you do. Yeah. Well, again, a we'll, uh, couple months or whatever, we'll get them on oh, again. Let's do it because again. we ne- we we didn't even really talk about the races in Kitzbühel <laughs> and in you know wherever else all over Europe, and we didn't get to the fact that again, just traveling around Europe for the crazy Canucks was that was a th- those are stories in themselves that could go on for hours. Yeah. You know. And then there's waxing. Wa- the wa- waxing yeah, they didn't even they had the the technicians they have they didn't have technicians. They didn't have them. They were doing it yes. themselves. And yeah. it, they had to learn to uh, what the Europeans were doing mm-hmm. and just to get, you know... An edge. Well, to get to where the Europeans were, where the Austrians were, where, you know, the climbers and all these guys were. Well, there was a pun in there, but you missed it. Oh, That's okay. On the edge? There oh, was an edge. I got you, uh-huh. you, you Lorraine. Well, we, <laughs> kept, we kept you a little bit longer than 10 o'clock, Lorraine, but we could have... I'm okay. We could have gone on... I could be on. here all day we could, with yeah. Jungle Jam oh, and you. It was just and great. And the Duke. Yeah. And, and the Duke. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> that was wonderful. Um, when we come back, we'll have a little uh, open text time. We'll get to some of your texts. The Duke was getting the gears a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Duke, you and I, and some guys were on you. You had one or two fans as well. I, I had just as many people backing me up as uh, I had tr- as I had trash talking. I don't know about that. We'll we'll talk about that when we come back. Plus, uh, Eddie Kratz from Sports Illustrated to uh, tee up tonight's uh, game in the NFL, the uh, NFC East. Uh, number five seed Philadelphia Eagles in Tampa Bay to take on the. South Division champion, Buccaneers. That's coming up uh, at 10.20. Uh, Before all that, here's the Duke with a sports 1440 update.